Hey everyone, it's August. In just a few seconds, you are going to hear a fun episode on pleasure and living fully and orgasmic bliss and more. I just wanted to give you a quick heads up that about halfway into my interview with the amazing Kathy Eldon, there's a bit of Skype feedback we weren't able to fix, but I really wanted to, you to have the content. Everything she had to say was really poignant and profound. Thank you so much for listening. Enjoy the show. My name is August McLaughlin. And I've been contemplating Girl Boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin. A spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. Only on Global Voice Broadcasting. Emotions are tunnels. You have to go all the way through the darkness to get to the light at the end. Emily Nagoski, come as you are. How do you get or stay turned on, not just sexually, but in life? How do you find healing after loss, love after heartbreak? And yes, girl boners, when there are, well, shall we say roadblocks in the way. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin. And we have so much fun and inspiration in store for you today, thanks to women who have agreed to share their personal experiences and expertise. Later in the show, Dr. Megan and I will share thoughts for a listener who is in her 40s and wants to experience orgasmic bliss for the first time. We'll also talk pleasure and why guys may be more like microwaves and gals may be more like crockpots. You will see what I mean. First, I am so honored to welcome Kathy Eldon, a film and TV producer, author, and so much more. In 1997, she and her daughter Amy launched Creative Visions. The global organization that supports creative activists is inspired by her son Dan Eldon, a gifted artist, adventurer, and activist who was killed in 1993 while on assignment for rooters in Somalia. Kathy has written 17 books, including In the Heart of Life, a beautifully intimate memoir that's full of passion and love and heartbreak and self-discovery. I adore all you do, Kathy. <laughs> Thank you for joining me. Well, I'm really glad I turned up today. This is so, so good for me. Thank you very, very much, August. I'm thrilled. As you know, I'm really enjoying your, your book and your personal journey. I'd love to start with your early years and with a question I ask many guests. I know you have pretty conservative roots, having grown up in the Midwest. What did you learn about sex and sexuality um, when you were growing up? I remember in seventh grade, there was a class that mortified everyone and then there was no more class. You know, that was, it was the class. Yeah. <laughs> that was about it. And it didn't really tell you anything. There was no process involved. There was just kind of like outcome. So I have to say, I was about as naive and innocent as it is possible to be. But I was not alone. <laughs> I think many of my friends were in the same boat. And I managed to get through high school unscathed and well into college before any of it made any sense at all. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, learning through experience, which it's interesting how many people still relate to that and, and all over the country. I think it's really fascinating. And I know that when you uh, 
you went on to college and you left Iowa. You went to Wellesley and you ended up uh, marrying some a man from England. And you got married in the '60s, which is around the time of the you know the beginning of the sexual revolution. And I love in your book you talk about how you felt a bit contrary to it. You said that as passionate as you felt, you couldn't seem to let go. Yeah, I think the whole revolution had somehow passed me by. And for for all the um, ostensible freedom, I was a young mother. I had a baby at 24 and moved from college where I'd been with a, a guy that in those days, if you were going to sleep with somebody, you had to marry them. And not not everybody did, but that was the expectation, certainly of a young Iowa Methodist girl, was that you were going to uh, marry what, wh- whomever you <laughs> slept with. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of constraining, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> yeah. And in order to go back to Iowa, knowing that I was very involved with this guy, we sort of had to move rather rapidly towards um, pretending to get married or, or that we were engaged or thinking about getting engaged. Mm-hmm. He was not the right person. It was not the right relationship. And blessedly, I, looking back with joy, uh, it fell apart. And I, because I was very frustrated, I was very unhappy, and um, it just wasn't right. So two weeks later, I was back in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, working at a summer camp, and I stumbled into uh, meeting a young English, dashing, fabulous human being who swept me off my feet. And, and two years later, uh, with only knowing him about 19 days actually in, being in the same country, maybe maybe slightly more than that, I found myself in London mm-hmm. with somebody I didn't really know very well, but he was dashing and lovely. You <laughs> so, have always been very adventurous, haven't you? Well, you could say reckless. You could <laughs> say adventurous. I don't know. We can we can define you know those words <laughs> accordingly. Yeah. That's so interesting. So. Uh, you went on to ha- start a family, and you went to ended up moving to Africa uh, with your children as well. And you wrote about feeling that you discovered your roots and true home there. What did you mean by that? We arrived. I, I'd been living in London in, in a suburb uh, called Mill Hill, outside of London. I lived in a very nice uh, four four bedroomed house. They call it detached. It was detached from other houses. It was in a quiet little cul-de-sac, but it was about, I don't know, 200 feet from the freeway, the, the M1 motorway, as they called it. And it was so bleak and so lonely and so hard. And I had two little children. We moved there when Amy was five months old. Dan was probably just turning four. And I was brought up to believe that I could really make an impact in the world. But we lived way out, too far to drive in really every day. I didn't really have, you know, childcare. So I was leading this life of not so quiet desperation. I remember at times literally running across the motorway bridge, you know, screaming uh, because I was so frustrated. And I must say, I don't think I'm totally unusual because I think a lot of mothers of small children uh, find that it's not exactly easy to be a mother of small children. It's really hard. I bet. I can imagine. I don't have children, but I have a whole bunch of nieces and one nephew and my siblings who have the children. I'm just in awe. It's it's a 
a whole new, it's like you have multiple identities and many full-time jobs and <laughs> I can only yeah. imagine. <laughs> no, very true. And in those days, you know, we didn't have internet. We didn't have uh, television came on at four o'clock in the afternoon for small children. So it wasn't like there was even an escape in women's television, let's say. The Oprah didn't exist. And, and I actually wanted to be um, to do women's television because I'd done it briefly in Iowa. Uh, but it didn't exist. And it certainly wouldn't have existed for somebody with an American accent. Mm -hmm. So my, my opportunities for working were limited. Um, <laughs> but I managed to find a way to work as a, a teacher at the American School in London. And that opened my horizons drastically and introduced me to a world of new people, which kind of saved my life. Mm, beautiful. That's amazing. And how did living in Africa affect you spiritually? Moving to Africa was like a, a, a technicolor explosion of light, of sound, of new smells, of new tastes. I'd never had a uh, kumquat at that point. I don't think it were a, a prickly pear. It was absolutely dazzling. I was blown away by the, the the meeting extraordinary people. I call them creative, active people, who weren't were, were nation building. They were in the process of what happened to us maybe in the 1700s, where they didn't ask permission. They didn't sort of have to get a license. They just rolled up sleeves, and when they saw a problem, they created a solution and and, and went for it. And I was dazzled by these people, and I started uh, working as an, a journalist for the Nation newspaper and telling their stories. And every time I told a story, a little bit rubbed off on me. <laughs> That's beautiful. I love that, the power of storytelling and artistry. Did you end up um, talking to your daughter about relationships and sexuality um, because you hadn't learned as much yourself, or did she end up learning more in school? That's a very good question. I, I think Amy was of, of a completely different generation. And I remember once I was in England on a, some sort of trip and Amy wrote to me and said she just, she's 13, just 13, but she'd done a, a school report on STDs, you know, it's, uh, sexually transmitted diseases. And I thought, my gosh, you know, I didn't even know there were such a thing in, um, at, at 13. So she was very matter of fact, very knowledgeable. The, the, um, the relationship conversations were not something that I had at that time, you know, about my relationships at all. And um, that would have been not in an area that I would have chosen to go uh, when, when she, you know, that wasn't something we talked about, <laughs> just clearly. Sure, but, sure. Yeah, yeah. And you were uh, working on films in L.A. Uh, when you received word about Dan having been killed in Somalia, which you write about so poignantly, and and I really hope that everyone reads your book to to really, you know, understand through your words exactly what what happened and what you went through. And I feel like so many people can learn from your healing journey. And you talk about kind of the the dynamic in your mind of you're going through the grief and then you have, you know, your rational mind is trying to prompt you to do different things and, and imagining what healing would be like when, you know, you had to go through these grief processes. And I, I wonder if you have any insight for somebody who may be listening, who is going through a dark time, perhaps in the midst of incredible loss, what would you say to them as far as finding healing? Well, they say one of the quotes up I have up in our, uh, in our center is when you're going through hell, keep keep going, you know, that uh, don't stop there. Uh, at the time of Dan's death, and he was beaten and stoned to death by a mob together with three other young, beautiful men. And 
also at the same time, there were probably 80 Somali uh, elders and, and women and children and young men, older men who were killed. So this was not a, a tragedy that was limited to me. It was shared in a way by uh, a ex- large number of other people. But that doesn't make it easier for the individual who's in pain. At the time that Dan was killed, I would have never believed that I could be happy again. I would have never believed that I could find meaning in what seemed like such a completely purposeless death. death. And I never would have believed that I would probably be, you know, be sharing my story with with you uh, because I was so lost and so small. But out of fairly quickly, I have to say, I knew that I I had to do something with Dan's death. And I see that around me so often with people who've lost someone, whether it's an older person who has died exactly when he, she, in theory, should have gone, um, or somebody when, who has you know, just di- disappeared out of our life in the most uh, inappropriate fashion and, and far too soon. But people, some people seek to create new meaning out of that loss. So gain something out of something that is feels like a, a, a brutal loss. So for me, fairly early on, I sought to transform the death into something that had life and vitality and energy and purpose. So we started with doing uh, conferences on journalists at risk, and we made a, a documentary called Dying to Tell the Story about uh, j- journalists in frontline zones. Now that's not typical, and I, but you can do a, a window box. You can, you know, create a fund for a kid in need. You, you can, there's so many, just innumerable uh, opportunities to focus your grieving energy on something positive and put the energy that you would put in that person you love, put that energy into something that will commemorate, celebrate, uh, illuminate that person. Beautiful. And you do that marvelously. And in a bit, I'd love to hear more about um, creative visions as well. I would love if you would share a little bit about the psychic you encountered uh, shortly after Dan's memorial service. I was really fascinated by this story. I know you were skeptical, and it just was a really incredible um, experience. Well, thank you. I was a journalist in Kenya. I have since done, um, I've produced for CNN, for PBS, for Turner, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, I, I feel like I'm a fairly credible person and I'm pretty straightforward. And so when a friend of mine called and said, you know, she really wanted me to, to meet this psychic who'd described Dan's death and other things that just seemed to really come from him, she wanted me to experience it. And basically I sort of poo-pooed it and then I thought, oh, well, whatever. And I booked under a false name, I turned up, um, there was no way she could have known who I was. And within minutes, uh, a minute or two, she was describing the way Dan was killed, the first of two memorial services that we had. She described jewelry that I was wearing, and I um, you know, it's, well, I think that, that that was on a telephone call later. But she went through what was essentially like a laundry list of of um, this, this things that I was going to have to do, tasks that I was going to have to do. Start a foundation in his name. Um, speak all over the world about uh, about what had happened, and and 
and, and inspire children to believe they had a role to play in changing the world around them. And it's just like, really? You know? <laughs> and it wasn't something that if a typical person had wandered in, that they would necessarily be told. You know, it was very specific and and appropriate for me, but probably not appropriate to most other people. Amazing. And when did that that moment must have come to mind when you were uh, starting Creative Visions Foundation, or was it that experience that sort of got you on that path? That was certainly uh, something that played into the purpose of the foundation. We had actually, we had an organization called Creative Visions, but it did not have a focused pur- purpose that reflected Dan. And following his death, we decided to focus on supporting creative activists those creative active people I was telling you about earlier, but people who are using arts and media for social impact, people using art, music, dance, drama, a lot of film, telling stories that need to be told about problems that need to be solved. And over the last 12, 15 years, we've worked with more more than 260 projects and productions officially, and then hundreds more people who flow through the center here, the Dan Elden Center for Creative Activism in Malibu, who are seeking to create meaning in their lives through using their creativity for good. And mm-hmm. that's everybody. Everybody can be a creative activist. Absolutely. And that is such a dear-to-my-heart uh, mission that you have. So I'm so grateful. And I wonder if you have any tips for people who do want to start using their creativity um, for a greater good. I think everybody is creative. And we, you know, people say, oh, I'm not creative. I can't draw. But that has nothing to do with creativity. Creativity is problem solving, it's lateral thinking, it's just seeing the world through slightly different lenses. So we all are doing something in life, but if you take a little strand of what it is that you're doing and say, hey, you know, I'm going to devote 2% of my corporate earnings or my, uh, you know, entrepreneurial earnings to a project or, a, or, or, or an organization or a fund, just take a little bit out, you know, and you're never going to miss it, but you're going to add such meaning to your life. Mm. Or brand or create a, a product that where the profits go to whatever, you know, uh, uh, something else. Or, you know, in our in our instance, tell a story that can go online that you can share that will mobilize people around an action about advocacy, about volunteerism, about fundraising, whatever it is that you can do to motivate, inspire, and engage people around important issues. You will be amazed at how rich and full your life will be and how full-filled you will be. Is that what you mean by turning on your power? I know that's a big theme for you, and it's uh, on your personal website, uh, the Kathy Alden site. What what can we do to turn on our power? That's a, you know, I haven't really thought about that one lately either. I'd sort of forgotten that that was my motto or my slogan. I think in a way it's just uh, unblocking it. The power exists. The power is turned on all the time. It's flowing, it reaches blockages, it can sort of diminish because we may have been told we weren't very good at something or we shouldn't be doing something or we're ostensibly headed in another direction. So it's really about unblocking our own, um, uh, us putting up the obstacles. I, I think that power is limitless. It flows from the life force that uh, is universal and but it's we who stop it. 
I love that. And you have no idea how appropriate it is. In our next segment, I'm talking with uh, Dr. Megan Fleming, who's a sex and relationship therapist, and she's answering a question about um, a, a woman wanted to know how she could start to reach orgasm. And she's in her 40s, and she's never experienced that sort of pleasure. And we're talking exactly about that, that it's it's that we stand in our own way for all kinds of different reasons. What what kind of um, blockages have you learned to move past in your own life? Well, certainly the that the orgasmic blockage was I was probably forty six, and that's just staggering. So for that next um, the interview, that people should never give up. You know, never give up knowing that that's going to be possible. I think for me, part of it was not knowing how to be angry and not knowing how to be true and real and honest. So that that was, for me, a, a revelation. And I think addictive behavior, whatever it is, um, you know, whether it's eating disorders or food or, excuse me, or drinking or drugs or sex or whatever, work, that there's a kind of longing within us or there's an emptiness within us, um, which I think for me was born of not, being real, not being true. Mm. So the more we can express what we feel and and live that the truth of who we are, you know, that there's that know thyself and to thine own self be true. And that's really hard. The knowing ourselves is hard, but the being true to ourselves is really hard. <laughs> that is but, very true, yes. But I've never felt more true, more whole, more real, more um, more with more energy flowing than I do at this point in my life. So for much younger women and uh, middle middle sized women, I, you know, just the sense that it doesn't fall apart as we get older, we get we get I think happier, and and you know our sexuality becomes more fulfilled and just who we are as, as whole people. You know, so don't ever feel like it's all going to fall apart at 50. It gets better. Oh, that is so inspiring. I love that so much. Um, in your book, you mention the African belief that spirits exist in all of us. Do you feel, Dan, now in your everyday life? I 100% believe that spirit energy remains. And maybe some spirits don't choose to stick around, and that's fine. They've got other tasks to do. And But I felt very strongly that and not just because of psychics or mediums and I was very careful about how often I consulted uh, psychics because it's it's not fair to the spirits to just you know um, belabor your relationship with them um, through another medium I think if we can hear them we can connect with them I believe and I'm not an, an evangelist. I don't care what you believe or other people believe. It's fine. It's perfectly fine. But my experience as a journalist, as a, you know, credible sort of solid person has been that that spirit energy didn't go away. Mm. And it may sometimes. I, I don't know. But I feel like Dan and what he called his team spirit, uh, has enabled me to meet the most extraordinary people imaginable and to manifest things that were beyond my wildest dreams, both personally, professionally, and then with this amazing organization, Creative Visions, that I have the great pleasure of, you know, inhabiting. I, I, I live here a lot of the time. But <laughs> it's, it's an incredible organization. It's creativevisions.org. I'd love people to visit it and join our network, uh, join our newsletter, and just be a part of it. Yes. I joined your Facebook group recently. I'm very excited to, to learn oh, more. Thank you. Thank you. 
what is one thing that you hope people take away from your journey that you so boldly shared in your book? I think that we should never give up. Never give up hope. Never give up the belief that you can create visions and live dreams. Now, not every dream is going to manifest in the way that you thought it might, but please hold that vision, that dream in front of you. And I think what can make it a maybe even more manifestable, if that's the word, is doing things not only for yourself, but also for others. So it's, it's that living fully for yourself, but also being aware of, of others and having empathy, compassion and, and embracing the other. And at a time when we are, oh, goodness me, so, uh, fragmented and fractured and, 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 and anxious about the quote other, this is the time to embrace. This is the time to think, how can I serve? And how can I truly realize my dreams as a fulfilled individual? Beautiful. I love that mission and that message so much. And I know there are many wonderful messages and um, gifts that so many receive from Dan's work. And I know you, you published his journals, which are gorgeous. And he lived so large and so much in, in too short of time. What's one thing that you hope people really learn from, from Dan? Dan sought his identity through his art, through a sense of adventure, and through his activism. And if you had to find three words, you know, that, that defined him, the arts, adventure, and activism really says it all. Let's think about what defines each one of us. He, he created a mission statement for Safari as a way of life. And he said to explore the known and unknown, distant and near, to see with the eyes of a child all traces of horror, beauty, utopia, or hell. So what's our mission statement? And it doesn't have to be a mission statement for the rest of your life. But think about our lives. If you were to die tomorrow afternoon or, let's say, in a year, what do you want to leave behind? What's your legacy? He was 22, but he left behind so much goodness. Um I, I want to. I'm not. I, I want to approach death fearlessly because I've lived so well and fully. Um, so yeah, that's it. If you had to die in a year, what do you want to leave behind? <laughs> that's it, and it's not morbid. It's just, it's joyous. It, that's gorgeous. I, I'm really inspired by that. Thank you so much, and thanks for joining me again today. Would you please remind people where they can learn more and how they can get involved with Creative Visions Foundation? Thank you. CreativeVisions.org. Join the network. Joining our newsletter, um, KathyEldon.com, for more about me and my crazy adventures. And then DanEldon.com to just learn about that noisy spirit. Such an inspiring human being. Please race over to, to check out Kathy Eldon's work, read her book, check out Creative Visions Foundation. I will share links on my website, August McLaughlin, as well. And next, we have that wonderful uh, segment with Dr. Megan I'm really excited about because we have a wonderful question from Sheila who wrote this. So I've never told anyone this before, but I'm 43 and have never had an orgasm. I've only had two partners, my high school sweetheart, who I was married to for almost 20 years, and my current partner. Sex with my former husband was pleasurable when we had it, but I never climaxed and occasionally faked, and we both seemed okay with that. My boyfriend wants me to orgasm. He said it's as important to him as his own. And finally, I feel like I really, really want that too. Do you have any tips for an aspiring orgasm newbie? Thank you so much for this question, Sheila. Here's what Dr. Megan had to say. 
Sheila, I'm so excited for you and sort of this new chapter in your life. Um, you know, here's an opportunity where it sounds like that for the first time for yourself, you really, really want to explore uh, increasing your arousal, your pleasure, and having that cultivate in orgasm. I mean, orgasm really is sort of that uh, climax of sort of our sex, sexual excitement. Um, and I think what I want to say to everyone listening, though, the important distinction here is that it's coming from new, you and not just your boyfriend. Because so often I have uh, clients come in who, you know, they're really feeling partner pressure to have an orgasm um, because a partner sort of feels like sort of it's at a challenge and, you know, when if they can't make it happen, it can impact their own sense of self-esteem. So I really want to sort of distinguish those two cases where, you know, the desire for the orgasm is coming from a partner versus coming from your own, from your own self and the desire for your own pleasure. And from that place, I think anything is possible. And so first of all, I want to help you know that you're normal. You're not alone. You know, there are a number of women that uh, don't have orgasms, sometimes never. Um, and two thirds of women don't have orgasms with penetration alone. They need sort of the additional clitoral stimulation. Um, so I just want to take that step back to help you realize that again, orgasm is sort of that tipping point of excitement and of, of arousal. And that arousal is both mental and physical. So I really want you to sort of slow down and get curious about what are your turn-ons, both mentally and physically. Um, because I think so often women are not taking the time in, in part to be sufficiently aroused, um, you know, I often say women are more like crockpots and men are like microwaves. So sometimes in order to get to where our partner's at, we sort of uh, cut off our own arousal and um, don't take the time to uh, let it really build. So taking the time is an important key. And the other is, again, recognizing where is your mind? Because my experience is women who haven't had orgasms, they that's become a thing. And so in the moment, they're thinking, oh, you know, it's not going to happen. It's taking too long. Da, 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 da. Like all that negative, I call it intrusive thoughts. And there's nothing sexy about that inner dialogue. In fact, it's actually inhibiting your arousal. If you think about it, the negativity is constricted energy. Constricted energy constricts blood flow. Um, and that, you know, inhibits the vasocongestion, which is part of your arousal response. So Bring your mind to a sexy place, whether that's in the moment with your partner or it could be, you know, recalling one of the, you know, most amazing sexual experiences you've had with this partner or even fantasy, anything that helps bring you back in, into an erotic space and into the moment. Um, and I think to recognize that, um, the role of lubrication can also be potentially an important ingredient because, you know, someone even without orgasm become very wet, other women not so much. And sometimes when you're not feeling uh, particularly wet or you're noticing feeling dry, that too can be inhibiting response. So I often say, you know, go ahead, start with lubrication because that sensation is part of the arousal response and kind of... Um, if you think about Pavlov's dog, if you took an intro uh, psych class, that stimulus response, the lubrication of wetness is often associated in the brain with the arousal. And so pairing the two is often, in my mind, a really great choice. Um, and so I sort of want to let you know, you know, most importantly, that you are normal um, and that no woman's arousal, orgasms, lack thereof, body parts or emotions are exactly the same. So this is your opportunity to find your own unique sexual blueprint. Um, and what are those sensations, you know, not only where your mind's at in an erotic space, but from head to toe, not just exclusively focused on general stimulation. You know, what really are the sensations that turn you on? Um, because I think we 
disempower ourselves. We don't recognize that long before our partner enters the room and absolutely they have ways of turning us on and off. We also do for ourselves. So really seize the moment and the opportunity to be turning yourself on, as I said, long before your partner even enters the room. And I want to also leave you with sort of three great resources and books. Um, one is the newer one, Come As You Are by Dr. Emily Nagoski, um, which I think is a great book that normalizes um, and looks at sort of all the science that we now have to explain sexuality, arousal, and orgasm. The other is by Dr. Vivian Cass, The Elusive Orgasm, and A Woman's Guide to Why She Can't and How She Can Orgasm. And then thirdly, and this is a classic, so it's older in, in multiple reprints, and that is Becoming Orgasmic, a Sexual and Personal Growth Program for Women. And that's by Dr. Julia Hyman and Dr. Joseph Lopiccolo. All those are available on Amazon. So happy reading, happy exploring. And as always, can't wait to hear how it goes. Thank you so much, Dr. Megan. A beautiful advice as always. Everyone check her out at greatlifegreatsex.com. I loved what Dr. Megan said about, you know, turning ourselves on, recognizing if or when we're turning ourselves off and really knowing our own pleasure. I think we really have to give ourselves permission to welcome and fully experience pleasure, especially in a world that sends us these mixed and negative messages about sexuality. One thing we know from research, and if you're like me, you also know from personal experience, is that what we believe about sex tends to be self-fulfilling. So if we believe we can't or won't orgasm or that pleasure is shameful, we probably won't orgasm. And if we do, it won't be as amazing as it could be. If we believe we can and that desire isn't shameful, Schwing. imagine if we were all taught about women as perpetually aroused, ultra-orgasmic beings, and that those attributes didn't make us slutty, quote-unquote, but awesome, right? And what if we were taught that guys, to be macho and manly, they had to not desire sex very often? I'm not suggesting that, obviously, but we would have a very different world, don't you think? So why are many women more like crockpots and men more like microwaves when it comes to arousal? Physiology might contribute, sure. You know, there's differences in sex hormones, and I know a lot of experts talk about that, but I personally believe beliefs and messaging play a much, much larger role. I mean, everybody's different. Every body is unique. And it's totally okay if we are turned on super often or not or whatever. But I really think that giving ourselves permission to be who we authentically are in our sexuality just changes everything. Here's one example. If you've ever used a vibrator, you know that many folks with vulvas can get turned on and climax pretty darn fast. One study I read said that typically orgasm happens within minutes using a vibrator and also is quite fast while masturbating. So if women are able to do that when they're on their own, that suggests that there's other factors. And I'm not saying it's the partner necessarily. It could be you know, feeling insecure about what somebody else might think or uh, feeling, you know, concerned about pleasuring another person or, you know, all kinds of different factors can can contribute. Other research shows that we are just as visually turn-onable, totally a word, as guys are, and yet we are far more prone to sexual shame for all sorts of valid but also, you know, not our felt reasons. Regardless, there's something to be said for slow cooking, if you know what I mean, for all genders. 
you know, quickies are awesome, but slowing down arousal can lead to a whole lot more full body pleasure. And for us estrogen-based folks, the possibility of longer and multiple orgasms comes with that. So that's pretty cool. Regardless, the more we embrace our girl boners and our uniqueness and their uniqueness, the more often and deeply we can experience pleasure in and outside of the bedroom. I believe that so much. It can become a way of life. Seriously, I believe our our sexuality and our sexual pleasure, it's in everything. It's in the air we breathe. It's in the words we speak. And when we let it just be free, so much can happen. So Sheila, I want to state just for the record that you can have the orgasmic pleasure that you seek. Just like Kathy said, it's worth, you know, committing to that and going for it and, and letting it be, you know, a byproduct of loving yourself, accepting yourself, having a sense of adventure about your sexuality and getting to know your body. I really believe with all my heart that you will get there, not as a finish line at all, more of like a starting point or a continuation point. As Megan said, you're not only not alone in your challenges to get there by far, but this is such an exciting new chapter. I'm so excited for you. So thank you for your brave and important question. And most of all, for taking steps to learn more about your body and sexuality. That kind of empowerment is such a gift for yourself first. And then, if you desire, to share with another or others. Thank you all so much for listening. If you are enjoying Girl Boner Radio, please subscribe on iTunes if you haven't. And you can also leave a review simple few words on what you like about us. I love, love hearing from you. You can also get extras and a whole lot more on my website. Sign up for occasional email updates at augustmclaughlin.com or girlboner.org. Thanks so much again for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week.